Welcome to the Secrets of High Demand Coaches podcast, where I interview some of the best coaches in the business to find their secrets and share them with the world. I'm Scott Ritzheimer, founder and CEO of Scale Architects, and we help founders and leaders find the right coach at the right time so they can achieve the predictable success they deserve. And a huge part of that is helping great coaches do great work that creates enormous demand for their services with way less effort. If you're a high demand coach, I'd absolutely love to share your story and expertise as well. So stick around to the end of the show and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. Let's go. Hello, hello and welcome. Welcome once again to the secrets of the high demand coach. Now, the astute amongst you are wondering who's this weird guy and what's with a strange accent. I'm clearly not Scott Ritzheimer, your regular host. I'm Les McKeown, founder and CEO of Predictable Success. And I'm a friend and uh, a mentor, I guess, to Scott in many ways. And since this is a really special episode, it's on the one hand, Episode 100, which is unbelievable. Scott has already done more podcast episodes than I've done in my entire career, I think. And because he's just launched a new book, more about that in a moment or two, uh, he's asked me to pinch hit the hosting role, which I'm very happy to do, and turn the mics around and interview him. And I couldn't be more delighted and happy to do that. Scott's launched the digital version of his new book, The Founder's Evolution, Conquering the Journey Every Founder Must Face. And it's brilliant, and I'm really looking forward to getting into it in more detail. And for the few of you, there may be some of you for whom you're listening to this for the first time, and you may not know this, Scott and the teams he has led, which include our cadre of scale architects, have helped start and scale over 20,000 organizations. That includes for-profit businesses, nonprofits, even churches. And having seen so many founders and heard their stories, Scott discovered that underneath this, there really only is one founder's story. And those who succeeded had grown to understand that journey and had evolved at each stage along the way. And those that failed or came up short did so many times just because they didn't understand that one story, the founder's journey. And it beat them. So Scott sat down and like I said, He's written this great book where he maps out each stage and he took what he learned from all those thousands of leaders as well as from interviewing over a thousand high demand coaches. That's a big number of people to talk to. And you see a lot of patterns when you talk to that many people. And many of them have been on this show. And Scott identified the essential strategies you can use in each stage of the founder's journey. So Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Les. It's so fun being on this side of things. We actually kicked it off with a friend, Josh Elijamine. He hosted uh, episode one. And, uh, you know, as I was looking at what was going to happen with episode 100 and what we we're going to do around this new book, I-, I wanted someone else to come in and join me. I wanted to be able to turn the mics around uh, here a little bit. And it was an easy and instant and obvious choice to have you come on. So I was just absolutely delighted that you're here. Uh, super excited about this conversation. Me too. And the first thing that I want to know is uh, something pretty simple. How, uh, uh, being somebody who, as you know, has written many books myself, and I know 
just what's involved. Why did you do it? What's what's the reason that you sat down and created the founder's evolution model in the first place? Yeah, I actually open up the book with a story that that really helps kind of uh, make sense of all of this. And uh, I, I'm not a huge, huge sports guy, and you and I share the affinity for not overdoing sports analogies, but I just bludgeon a sports analogy through this book. I'm just going to, you know, just put it out there and say that that's just the way it is. And, and I'll explain why that is a little bit later, because uh, there's a really important distinction there between the sports world and what we're, we're doing as founders. But if you imagine, right, uh, it's uh, let's take American football for our international audience. Uh, American football, uh, you got to get the ball into the end zone. That's the goal. So well, let's take like championship game. Uh, you're on the three yard line. You're just a couple yards away. You could sneeze and fall over and get it in. But there are 11 full grown men that want to crush you in the process. Right. So. Uh, ball's on the floor. We got to get it. Only a couple seconds left. Have to get in the end zone to win. Otherwise, we lose. And you you know exactly the play to run. You've done it a thousand times over your career. Uh, and it's a it's a fake to the running back, and then a toss uh, to the back corner of the end zone to your star wide receiver. And so you call the play. Everyone sets up. And 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 as everyone sets up, you, you realize. Everyone's set up on the field, but you're on the sideline now. You know, the difference in the thousands of times you've done this is you're the coach on the sideline. And you've the best you can do is hope that you've trained your people enough to get it done. So uh, let's fast forward, uh, hike the ball, gets to the quarterback, fakes the handoff, the defense bites, right? Brilliant play call, works fantastic. And uh, everyone collapses on the hole. Your star wide receiver is going to be wide open. And you look over and horror of horrors, he got the call wrong and he's blocking instead of running to the end. So what do you do? Like, and just every time I tell the story, I just imagine it's like you just take off down the sideline right? faster than you've ever run in your entire lifetime. And by this time, you know, uh, you're not necessarily in the same shape that you were beforehand, but somehow like you are booking it. The headset's falling off. You throw the, you know. Uh, the board to the side, it doesn't matter. All bets are off and you're gunning it because you know where that ball is going to be and you know where someone has to be to catch it. And somehow, nobody can really calculate why. They're going to study the math on this for years. Somehow you make it all the way down to the corner of the end zone, make the diving catch just in time. And what you expect to hear is the crowd goes filled, right? But there's 80,000 people in the stadium and you can hear a pin drop. Yes, exactly, right? Uh, and and the only thing that happens is these little yellow flags start flying toward you and men in black and white stripes are running in your direction. And everyone's shocked. Uh, your, your team is like woefully embarrassed. The very same thing that would have been the talk of the town and you'd have been the hero, right? Especially in your town for for uh, at least a, uh, the off season, right? Uh, and, and they'd go in history of this amazing catch is now a, a, a laughingstock in, in the sports world, right? It's an embarrassment to the people that you're trying to help. And never has this happened. In the, in the history of professional football, at least American football, this has never happened, right? And, and it would be absolutely ludicrous if it did. But I can tell you, and you know this from working with founders and leaders every day, it happens every single day in the All business the world. Every single day in the business world. We we do the thing, and, and fundamentally what's happening here is we're doing the thing that gave us success in the past, but doesn't anymore. Don't we don't learn it to embrace our new position as a coach on the sideline. It's not about how fast we can run. It's not about how uh, how far we can throw the ball or how high our vertical leap is. None of that matters anymore. But 
the reason why I use the sports analogy and the reason why uh, uh, the, it's so important for founders is that in sports, there's a sideline. It's There's a white painted line on right. the ground. And, and when right. you're on one side of the line, there's a set of rules. And when you're on the other side of the line, there's another set of rules. And uh, in the in the world of business, we don't have sidelines, right? And and as particularly as founders, that's why their journey is so different from everybody else. Is there's not even distinct stages. There's not. It's not like you got a promotion and you move to another stage. It, it's not like maybe even you open another site and move to another stage. There's no demarcation point. Right. And so when you look at it, you know, founder is CEO from the day they start, right? They print up their business card and it says founder and CEO on it. Right. Uh, but the reality of it is we don't act like a CEO for a very long time. Right. And so some people never get there. Yeah. Yeah. And so that definition is changing all the time. And because of that, we're crossing over the sideline and back and, and, and it's frustrating our team. We're exhausted, right? You imagine this happening in the sports world, some you know, 55-year-old head coach trying to keep up with his players on the field by running up and down every time the play is called. It, you know, it, 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 Of course we're exhausted. Right. And so as I was looking out there, I'm seeing this happen in real time with the coaches I'm working with. And, uh, and, and they're just chronically overwhelmed. I was actually sitting with a group of CEOs this morning and they went around the room and they're talking about how it was. And every single one of them had some degree of, I'm exhausted, I'm overwhelmed, I'm anxious about the future. These are successful men and women, right? These are not slackers. These are not like the downcast of society. Nothing wrong with any of that. But uh, these are people who from the outside look like they have it all together. But from the inside, they're completely overwhelmed and don't know where to go to fix it. And I, I, I mean, I, I, I get it. And like you yes, asked, that's what I work with every day. And, you know, as, you, as I think about the analogy, which I've, I've had the pleasure of you sharing with me before, so I've had time to, you know, sort of dwell on it and, and reflect how accurate it is. Uh, one of the other, well, two of the other things that I think where it meets uh, very well as an analogy is that when you're the founder, nobody's going to throw flags. You know, there are very few people, maybe your spouse or somebody who's very close to you may push back a little, but by and large, there's certainly no quotes authority out there that's going to tell you that you're not doing the right thing. The other thing that that happens, and we may get into this a little later, is you do that often enough and all your best players leave. I mean, why would they be there when you're going to be jumping in every minute uh, to, to do what they should be doing? And so if it comes a self-defeating thing, you then have to do that more often because yeah. you don't have really first-class people executing and it, that can become a bit of a cycle. So I know that, you, that you've identified uh, three ways in which that shows up as a challenge yeah. for founders. So share with us what those three challenges are. Yeah. And you'll see as we go through these that they kind of tie to a couple of the stages. Some of the stages are harder, similar to your predictable success model, and some are easier. But there's three really, really big challenges that that successful founders face, right? Uh, kind of earlier stages, those make sense. There's a lot of work out there on that. Uh, and, and we don't go into a ton of that other than to just say, hey, here's what the stages look like. But the, there were three big challenges that kept showing up. And, and when I was coaching folks, I realized that just about every challenge they were facing boiled down to one of these three things. Right. So the first one that comes up is, uh, is typically a, a young kind of entrepreneurial, nimble organization. And I don't know that I've ever met a founder that felt like they were growing fast enough, even if they were growing way faster than they ever thought possible or ever could. There's this gap between what we can see is, is uh, maybe available, maybe not even possible, but available, right? 
and and where we are right now. And for some folks, that gap is is just massive. Uh, they've they've grown a little bit, and they're just it feels like they're walking through mud, and and they can't figure out what it is. And so, what makes it so hard though is they're they're so in the business that they don't have the time or the energy or or the just the mental capacity to take that step back right. and figure out what's going wrong. Right? They're just trying to tread water. And 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 like even like thinking about growing is exhausting, uh, but they want it right. That's that's what makes it so hard is because it'd be like it'd be fine if it was just we we're okay with not growing, but I've not met a founder who's worth their salt that's not okay with growing at least in that stage. Sure. The second one that I found uh, is a really big one is again typically a slightly larger organization, uh, very successful by just about anybody's standard at this point. Uh, but these are folks who are really wanting to scale up, but they realize that they're the bottleneck, right? There's something in the way they're behaving, in what decisions are still on their plate. There's something about it. But again, because they don't have this sideline in the business, they don't have some clear way of understanding what needs to change and what doesn't. They know something needs to change about the way that they're leading, but they just don't know what it is. Right. And, and so what happens is they change things that they're not supposed to. They hang on to things that they're not supposed to. There's no real guideline for how to make this successful transition to a scalable enterprise. And, uh, and then the third one is uh, much later in the process for most folks, but it's this idea of, uh, uh, for founders especially, wanting to leave a legacy behind, right? Most founders... Some are in it to flip and some build their companies to sell. But I found that's an exception, at least in my world. Most founders want to do it because they believe in what they're doing. And even if they're done, right, they still want the organization to live on. They still want it to thrive after they're gone. And and after some soul searching, they want it to do better than it did when it was under their guidance, right? That's a, a little bit of a hard pill to swallow, but it's ultimately one that's worth it. But the problem is they realize they've built a business or a nonprofit happens in the nonprofit world. That's that's just way too dependent on them. It's right. highly refined to functioning around them and their skill set. But who else are you going to find to do that? And they look down inside their org chart, and they've got wonderful people, but nobody who can step into that role. They look outside their organization and think, how could I possibly trust someone to come in out of the cold and take care of this? You know, my nth child, if you will. Right? It's a baby to them, right. and and so you know, I've found. One of the places that successful founders mess up the most is this idea of succession. And I wanted to go straight at that in the later stages of it, because why it's so important is not just so that the organization lives on, but one of the things that I've found is when we sell ourselves short in succession, when we don't do the hard thing that's the right thing on it, what happens is we actually undermine our ability to function in later stages as well. Right, right. That's absolutely true. The We'll, we'll talk about the this, this stages in detail in a moment or two, but, and I, and I think, sure, that this will come out from what I know of your book, having had the chance to read it, uh, is that part of the problem is that the behaviors that need to change are typically, not always, but they're typically not in and of themselves bad things. In fact, yes. even more confusing, they're things that were typically highly successful yes. at the right time. But as you know, my old friend Marshall Goldsmith put it brilliantly in one of his best books, it's just that what got you here won't get you there. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and that sometimes 
you know, that feels a little flabby. It's okay, so what got me here won't get you there. It's actually stronger than that. What got you here will stop you from getting there. Yeah. And I think we'll see that when we talk quite a lot through the the stages. But before we get into the stages, I, I one uh, question that I, I maybe should have asked up front, I, I just want to clarify it uh, mostly for our listeners. Why is the book about founders and not leadership in general? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a question I actually get asked a lot. Is like, does this apply to just founders? Does it apply to others? I, I'm very specific in the way I talk about it. Is I'm talking to founders. And it's it's actually the exact same story for leadership in general. In fact, if you want to really nerd out on it, it's the same story of like of Luke Skywalker. It's the same story of Jesus, right? It's, it's like it is the hero's journey for those who are familiar with storytelling. It's the same pattern that falls through. There's a universal pattern here. But the reason there's a couple of reasons for founders. One, just uh, I, I love working with founders, and uh, and because of that, that uh, uh, the, there's just the entrepreneurial part of that 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 I feel like once organizations get a little bit bigger, they start to lose that. It loses its dynamism, right? So it's just right. the founders are such interesting people. Uh, many of them are are just completely weird and crazy, and I'm one of those, so I can say it. But like. They're just really cool people, and and so that's a big part of it. I just I love the ability to work with folks that are that that challenge me, right? That make right. me think differently, and uh, and are challenging their industry, and uh, and and not just from like an idea standpoint. There's lots of people who talk about disruptors and they're bloggers, right? It's like, well, okay, that's fine. There's and again, there's a place for that, but founders don't just talk about it. They go and do it, right? And and, and oftentimes they do it a lot more than they talk about it. Right. Which I love. I I absolutely love that. Second one, and I kind of mentioned it before, but if you're in a leadership journey and you're moving through these stages, you usually have a different title at every stage, right? Or, or you move to a different company, you have a different promotion. Uh, there's some physical real world indicator that the game has changed. Now, it's still hard. You still have to make the shift. Uh, and there are uh, lots of uh, folks who still struggle with that. I mean, it's the classic version of your best producer is not your best manager, right? And it's not because they're a producer. It's because the skill that they have in producing does not translate one to one as right. a manager, and they're gonna they're more likely to over rely on that than somebody else later. Same thing happens for founders, but they don't necessarily have this point where they're upgraded into a management. It kind of happens to them uh, when when they get enough people on their team. Uh, and then the third reason why, and, and this goes is kind of tied to the first one, but the third reason why is. It was the highest impact for my time, right? I, I've actually, I've done the founders thing. I'm a relatively young guy, I get that, but you know, ran a company uh, and and scaled it up. And like, I know what that tastes like. I know what that looks like. And I know how hard it is to feel like you're doing it alone. Right. And I also know that those few people, and you're one of them who, who radically shaped my ideas and understanding of how businesses are built and run and scaled that they, they didn't just move me downfield, they moved my entire company. My company, when I left it, in many ways, thanks to the predictable success model that you created, was so much better to work for than the company it was three and four years later or earlier when we were in this whitewater stage and I had no idea what to do about it. So there's an impact thing for my time that if I can help one founder, it helps their whole company, right? It affects the families of their employees. And I, I love being able to do things at that level. I, I totally empathize with that, and, and, and as you know, it's where my heart is too. I just love working with founders. And the the other element of of 
working with them that I, I just really thrills me is that a founder is all in typically because they have no alternative but to make whatever this thing is work. Not always the case, but uh, mostly the case. And you know, if you're a non-founder leader, and I have the privilege of working with many wonderful non-founder leaders, and I'm not making this a judgment uh, factor. It's not one's good and the other one's bad, but even your CEO of Megacorp Inc., you know, a household name, if for any reason it doesn't work out, you're going to get another job. You know, you're going to go somewhere else and get the chance to do it again. You're the founder, you know, you get knocked down, you got to get back up again in the same environment, make the same thing work again. And I find that incredibly motivating. So let's get into the detail here, Scott. Um, you, you lay out seven stages in the founder's evolution, and it is an evolutionary uh, process. So in as uh, not overly concise a manner, but as concisely as is reasonable for a podcast, take us through what the seven stages are. Tell us what their names are and, and what are the main features of being in each of those seven stages. Yeah. So uh, again, what I use to to help illustrate this, because we don't have sidelines as founders, is uh, I went through uh, and and looked at that kind of the hierarchy of a sports organization and found there's a great parallel there for each of these stages. So to just introduce it, and I, again, there's a book that you guys can get on this. We'll show you how to get it later. It's free for everyone. Uh, you can dive into all the details there. Uh, but what I just want to do is kind of walk through what are these seven stages and and what's the the thing that we can look at to kind of represent those stages? What's the parallel in the sports world. So uh, I, I actually believe that the founder's journey and our evolution as founders starts long before we ever start our organization, whether it be a business or nonprofit. And it starts in a stage that I, I call the dissatisfied employee. You, you look at founders that are about to be founders and without fail, they're sitting somewhere and it, sometimes it's in school uh, and they're dealing with that institution. Some, but oftentimes they're working somewhere, they're actually doing well at it. And what separates, you know, will be founders as dissatisfied employees from people who are just grumpy about their job or in a bad job is that even when it's good, they're not satisfied, right? Even when they're making great money, they're not satisfied. There's just something in them. I always tell folks who are in this stage that we're trying to figure out, are you a dissatisfied employee or do you just need a better job? I always tell them like, if you can do anything, and I think I may have even gotten this from you, if you can do anything but start a business, do that. Right. If you can do anything else, because if you can't do anything else, then then that's a great indication that you're ready. And what this is in our, our analogy is that's the trainee on the sideline, right? They're not in the game yet, right? They're, they're kind of watching the game. And there's this little bit of calling, little bit of arrogance of, I could do that better. You know, there's, there's just this like thing of like, I, I bet I can do that. And uh, the the main I'll hit this. The main thing that you want to do here is not rush this stage. Everyone tries to skip through this stage because it's so uncomfortable to just sit there and wait, right? It's uncomfortable to sit in the what feels like a dead end job. And as soon as the founder kind of makes that emotional, like I'm going to do this, it's like they're gone. Yeah, they're off to it. <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll talk about why that's a problem a little bit later. But my best piece of advice for someone here is to wait. And the reason why is you're learning on someone else's dime. Right. Once you make the leap, once you go full time, you're learning on your own penny and it's really expensive and it's really hard. 
So it's our trainee on the sideline. They're just trying to win their shot at the game. And then the next one is, that's our dissatisfied employee. Stage two is where a lot of us would say the entrepreneurial journey starts. And that's the startup entrepreneur, right? Uh, and it's, it's, it's not unlike being the star player in the game. Your job is to be the best at what you do. Now that's, yes, your kind of functional skill, but it's also being the best at selling what you do, right? And closing what you do and marketing what you like. You've got to, you've got to up your game across all these different, you know, you're doing the one man band thing and you got to, you got to sound good. Otherwise nothing else happens. Right. Uh, so it's about being a star player. And, and, and the focus here is on doing what it is you do better than anyone else around you, right? It's how fast you run. It's how high you can jump. It's how well you can catch. And, uh, and, and, you know, the one thing I always joke about this with folks, uh, and, and this is something from our world and predictable success as well, but you can always tell a startup entrepreneur by the, what I call the, like the entrepreneurial smile, right? It's that kind of like, how's it going? Good. You know, it's, it's hard, but, but, it, but you're still smiling. That, that's right. the thing about this is you are still smiling and, uh, again, founders are, they're just able to take a punch in the face and, and not stop grinning. It's, 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 it's involuntary, right? And, uh, and you'll face more rejection and, and difficulty in two years than a lot of people would in two lifetimes in this startup entrepreneur. And it's worth it, right? It's just worth it. And what happens when you do this well, when you make the diving catch, when you, when you are the star player and you do it well, you have success, right? And success brings in more clients and more clients brings in more work and more work means that oh, we need more help. And uh, and so the natural thing is, okay, I'm going to go find somebody. And it's usually your niece, right? Who just got out of marketing school or, you know, or, you know, your neighbor who, who could use a part-time job or whatever it may be. It's whoever has a heartbeat around you and is within proximity and you can con them into coming and working for you. That That's basically who it is. Suddenly you, you have people. In, yeah. You're bringing in people. You're bringing people on your team and you don't have the first clue about who to bring in and who not to bring in, right? And, but it doesn't really matter. It's just and you need the help. And so you bring in a couple of people. It's okay. But I found somewhere in that 5, 10, maybe 15, uh, this this shift happens. And it doesn't happen all of a sudden. It doesn't happen right when you hire somebody. But somehow the water temperature changes. And uh, the way to know that you're here or not is if you find yourself asking the question, what's wrong with these people, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I've got this whole group. There's something just fundamentally wrong with all of them. And you, you, if you're here long enough, you'll start to lose all hope in humanity because the reality of it is the people who will come and work for you and the people who should come and work for you are going to be wired differently than you, right? In, in your and my world, we call these operators. Uh, and uh, the other problem, though, is there's a lot of people who aren't like you and shouldn't work for you, right. but you don't know the difference, right? And so we very clumsily hire, and, and so you find yourself as what I call the reluctant manager. Most founders are not born to be managers as it's just not their natural very skill cute. set. Correct. And when you combine that with the fact that they don't have the right team either, and they can't tell who's the right team that's not being managed well and who's the wrong team that no matter how well you manage them, they're not going to be there. It's exhausting for founders. It's just utterly exhausting. And it's and, not as if they, they don't have anything else to do. All the other stuff hasn't gone yeah, away. This yeah, is all additive, right? It's 100%. Not only do you, you still have your job to do, but your job's like four times harder because you have to sell something for all these people to be able to put money on the table, right? So what I call it's the captain on the field. You're still in the game. There's still giant men who want to take your head off, right? Like you're still getting hit. 
And while you're getting hit, you're trying to get everyone else moving at the same time. You don't have the luxury of the big fortune something CEO whose job is to just lead, right? Right. Or, or, or even the line manager whose job is just to manage. You've right. got to lead, manage, do, uh, align, admin, like you've got it and all of it. And and you just and, don't- And also you don't you don't have a playbook at this stage, right? No, it's not like you're no in the locker room and selling people, you, know, you go up here and you do- Everything's inaudible, right? Yeah. Everything. Everything's in between your ears, right? And you just do it naturally. You don't actually do it naturally. Some of that's true, but you've been doing it for 10 years or three years, right? And you bring these people in who've been doing it for three months. There's no possible way that they could think like you. Right. And so there's this is kind of underlying frustration. Now, it's not necessarily a bad stage because organizations at this stage led by reluctant managers are growing like crazy many times, right? Not always, many times. But what's happening is, is that's where that gap shows up of between our vision and how fast we want to grow. It just gets harder and harder. So that reluctant manager is being the captain on the field. And Again, if we, we get it by right, if you figure out, oh, I actually have to manage these people, I have to learn what the plays are, and then I can still call audibles when I want to, but I have to say it so everyone else can hear it, right? right. Uh, if we do that well, organization continues to grow. But what happens is, and it's what, the founder's evolution is not up and to the right. What happens in stage four is it's actually in in the the founder's kind of perception of it personally, it's another step down and to the right. Right, moving from startup entrepreneur and all its glory and fame to a reluctant manager is not something we all aspire to, right? right? And then it happens again at this, what I call the disillusioned leader stage. This is where we're the coach on the sideline. We don't get to touch the ball with, like we used to, right? right? And when, when, when it's down on the line and something's hard happened, we don't get to just jump in and fix it anymore. And if we do, we're not in the shape to fix it. So it nearly kills us. And like you mentioned earlier, it drives all our best people away. So we can't keep our good people around. And and it leaves folks asking the question, is this it? Like, did I really start a company and scale it to $5 million to feel like this? Right. Right. Like from the outside, everyone's, oh, it must be wonderful. You're so successful. It's so cool. And they're they're quietly dying inside and they feel guilty for it. Right. I see, and, and I see so many leaders get to this stage and they get stuck here permanently because what they in essence do is they take a role which is like a player coach because they want to be the coach but they can't help themselves being on the field and so they end up oscillating backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and they never make the full transition yeah. that's necessary to get to your next stage isn't that isn't that true that's exactly right and and, and when you look at it, it doesn't seem like there's any reward for doing it, right? If you kind of map this trajectory, it, it, it feels like we went here to here, now to here. And if you map a line through that, we've got a pattern now. So as CEO, if I keep going down this road, it's going to go down again. Right. And, and it actually couldn't be further from the truth, right? Those who get stuck in this stage, it's like watching a movie to 95% and then turning it off. Right. You will be a miserable, hopeless, like... Right. Be, uh, like if you watch a movie, they're terrible, right? It's like just everything that can go wrong does go wrong. It's not until the last 5% that it all becomes worth it. And it's the exact same thing. It's the biggest single transformation in this whole evolutionary process is from stage four to stage five. And it's where you actually start acting like the thing you've called yourself all along, and that is CEO, right? It's the move from founder to chief executive. 
And uh, to extend our sports analogy, it's the move from the coach on the sideline where you're right there at the ground level still constantly with the temptation of crossing the, the line to actually taking a step up into the box where you can see the whole thing. Which is really viscerally very difficult for many, many founders. And many of them just never make the transition. Yeah. And I, I, for me in the predictable success world, the, the, this is... This is the stage at which the only stage by making the transition from your stage four to stage five into chief executive, it's only then that you can truly scale, right? Yes. You stay as the player coach. Sure, you can continue to grow. You can continue to win the occasional game, but you're not going to the Super Bowl. You, you just have no chance of building it if you stay in stage four. But some founders, they can't, they can't give up the visceral reward of just having their hands on the yeah. on the ground, you know, on the pitch and the dirt. Yeah. Uh, so getting into the chief executive stage, you equate it to being the manager in the box? Yeah. The GM in the box. The really nice thing about the GM in the box is a couple of things. One, there's air conditioning. Right? Like, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> there are some perks. Like, don't get me wrong here. Right? There are some perks. It's going to cost you something, but that AC in the middle of the winter is really nice, right? <laughs> it could be 100 outside or 30 outside, and it is sunny with a full bar. So like there, there's some perks to this. The second part of it is this is where we start to achieve asynchronous work, right? Right where where you as do not founder, need to be there for it to happen. Yeah, and, and you're not even thinking about this year anymore, right? Your primary focus is on next year, right? Your primary focus is on where are we going in ten years. It's where you actually get to be a visionary again, right. uh, and and it, it's again it's the that last five percent of the story. It's if you can make that transition. It's so fulfilling. And by doing this well, by not getting stuck in that earlier stage, by learning the skills that you need to actually be that chief executive, you're going to set yourself up for the thing that a lot of us want but have no business pursuing yet, and that is to become a true owner, right? To, to own and not run your business. And I think the reason why this fails so often and the reason uh, why... It's just a pipe dream for so many people is because they've not done these earlier stages, right? They haven't been a CEO, so how can you expect to lead one? Right. And 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 there's a, this is where that idea of succession really comes into play. And this is something I learned from you is that you cannot hand off your business to your number two, nine times out of 10, right? Because what it takes to be a great number two is not what it takes to be a great number one. And in, in the predictable success world, we call these visionaries, but the challenge is, You've been the visionary. You are the vision. And it, it's a huge soul-searching exercise to be able to open up your company to another visionary. It leaves you asking, and this is stunning to most people who are not there, but everyone I've seen there resonates with it instantly. It leaves you, the successful founder, asking the question, who am I? Who am I really? Right. If I'm not my business, who am I? And, and the reason why I'm so passionate about this, because you can sell your business however you want, you can transition it to whoever you want. But if you do the really, really hard soul searching work of, of being able to hand it off effectively to another visionary, not just dump it on them, but hand it off to them well, to learn how to lead them, what it sets you up for is, uh, is the, the seventh stage, this last stage, what I call the visionary founder. It's like being the hall of famer, right? And it's where, you now get to do it just for the love of the game. Right. You're not working because you need to. You know, you, you're not you're not playing golf because you have to get away, but you actually get back to the game and you do it by serving other visionaries. 
But you can't do that if you never learn to lead one. Right. And reaching that stage, you get to the point where you really are bringing a massive multiplier effect because you're not helping other people yeah. go through this process, yeah. not just having negotiated it for yourself. Yeah. And I think one of the great things that your book does, if I may say so, is there are a lot of people who get to that stage. They are actually visionary founders and they're very confident about what they achieve. What they're not confident about is that the path that they took to achieve it is replicable because how would they know what your book does is say, look, this there are there are underlying patterns to this. Yeah. There's a way to do this. Yeah. And I can help you identify where you're at and how you can move through those stages. Yeah. Now we want to do that and because of the sheer amount of great stuff you have in the founders evolution, we've had to break this into two podcasts. Everybody be delighted to know. You've just given us a tour de force in outlining the overall structure and the seven stages. And when we come back in the next episode, we're going to dive into what does that mean for you, where you are now, and how do you progress through that? So everybody is listening. Uh, I'm not all, I hope you need to come listen to the next episode in this uh, Secrets of the Successful Coach podcast because we're going to get into the detail of how this applies to you. But before we do that, and before we close off this episode, uh, tell folks how they can get a copy of the book. You mentioned that you're going to make it available for folks. How does that happen? Yeah, anyone can get it, their own copy for free. Uh, you can get it online at scalearchitects.com slash founders. Uh, you just plug in your name and info and you'll get an instant download link right there on the next page. You can download it. It's got all seven stages and it's got two to three essential strategies for every single stage. And the thing I want people to catch hold of is when you understand these stages, not only is it, hey, here's more things that Scott's telling me to do, what it allows you to do, the most powerful part, is it tells you the 20 to 30 things that people said you should be doing that you don't have to be doing right now. Right. Super. That's fantastic. Well, Scott, I, I will definitely see you on the next episode. And everybody that's listening, I look forward to seeing you there too. See you next time. Scott Ritzheimer here. Thank you so much for listening to the Secrets of High Demand Coaches podcast. If you are a successful coach, consultant, or advisor who's built a strong book of business and would like to be on the program, please visit go.scalearchitects.com. And if you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media and just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials? If you know someone who'd be a great guest, you can tag them on social media to let them know about the show. And make sure you include the hashtag high demand coaching. I love seeing your posts. I love seeing your guest suggestions. Thank you so much. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content to make sure you don't miss any of those episodes. Go ahead and subscribe now. Your thumbs up, your ratings, your reviews, they go a long way to help us promote the show and they mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, you can go to our website, www.scalearchitects.com, or you can follow me or the company on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.